I'm on a mission to change the world in 2000 days. What we ask for keeps dying on the floors of governments. We end up building bonds instead of breaking relationships. That is the power of an alternative. I have ideas all day long. You got problems? I got answers. Society is a technology. What you're doing is creating safety around change. What purpose does patriarchy serve? Patriarchy puts a century in every home. So many brilliant things today. I want us to find new worlds because we're curious, not because we're desperate. Hi everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot. Today is one of our bonus episodes. We'll be talking with Mina Raver, who is fantastic firebrand, brilliant, brilliant thinker, a visionary who actually puts things into action and who who brings to life the values that she has. And you all know that I'm all about power and ethics and community and values. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to give her the chance to introduce herself rather than me trying to encapsulate her into like three sentences. So without further ado, Mina, please tell us who you are and what you do. Leela, thank you so much for having me on. I'm Mina Raver. I live out in the absolute middle of nowhere in the woods in southwest South Dakota in the Black Hills with three little fae babies and three wild dogs and my (laughs) cat Persephone and my best friend and partner who works at the Crazy Horse Memorial. There's a plug for those guys. And I run a company called Tysiv and have a project, a special project that we're doing through that company called the 2000 Days Project, which actually came from years, a lifetime of politics, activism, and entrepreneurship. After all of that, I realized that a lot of the ideas that we have about how to really make change simply are not made to work. And so we have the 2000 Days Project instead. Oh, and most importantly, I'm also an intensive. <laughs> yes, yes, you are, which I love. <laughs> so thank you so much for that intro. Um, you all are going to love getting to know Mina. She has, you know, we got to know each other because there was a Facebook conversation and there was a comment chain underneath that Facebook conversation. And we were kind of, like, it looked like we were disagreeing, but I was pretty sure we weren't disagreeing. And she was like, do you want to, you know, get into it? And I was like, let's just have a conversation instead. And so we got on Zoom and I think we talked for, what, like two hours? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was a while. And then we were like, uh, maybe we should record this. So I was actually on Mina's podcast. Um, Mina has Forging Fortune. And um, that was an incredible conversation. I had a great time. You should definitely go check that out. Um, I will make sure that the link to that episode goes in the show notes so you can find it easily. Um, but I do recommend that you listen to all of the episodes, not just the one I'm in, um, and and go ahead and follow that um, project because it's a good way to, to get to know more people. You know, one of the things that I'm doing here is I'm trying to build connections between people so that rather than one person at the hub and all these other people connected to that one person who is me. I want everyone connected to everyone in, you know, when it's useful, when it's appropriate, when it's a good match. And so I'm running around making connections between everyone that I can everywhere. And that includes promoting people's podcasts. So I'm so delighted that you're here. Will you give us a little bit more about like who you are, where you are? Like you are not the kind of person that I would have expected to live out in the middle of nowhere, but you do. (laughs) I do. And that's really just because I need a lot of space and a lot of quiet between um, 
Well, first of all, I'm synesthetic, and my synesthesia is tied primarily to scent. And so one of the reasons I have a really difficult time living in cities is because with uh, synesthesia tied primarily to scent, but also to sound, sometimes rapid changes in those things kind of conflicts with the with my um, PTSD, and I can have panic attacks. So living out in the middle of nowhere is a really great way to, and I have found has been a really wonderful way to regulate. And so I can go and I can visit the cities as much as I want. But when I visit the cities, I'm always at my best. Yeah. And then you can kind of crawl back into the quiet places where the lights actually go out at night. I am right now, a lot of you folks know that I'm living in Berkeley and there's a lot that I like about living in Berkeley, but one of the things that I absolutely just test is the amount of street lighting we have at night. I want the lights to go out when the lights are supposed to go out. If I'm awake at night, it should be because it's a full moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I can't sleep during full moons either, but it's a great time to think. <laughs> it makes it makes a huge difference. So my background, I came from the kind of poverty that people don't realize still exists in the United States and um, being the only mixed child in my family and the oldest, I was in a lot of di- dangerous situations really very early. I got sick of being hungry around nine or ten years old, and that's when I started my first business and single-handedly moved my family you know, out of the projects and into a, a real apartment for the first time in my life. But during the years of trial... <laughs> After my mother left and my dad got sick, I had to work mm-hmm. in some really dangerous places. Like, um, I did a lot of migrant work. I would I would go to people's homes to clean their homes. Mm-hmm. And so after years and years and years of really buffering the dangers for my brother and sisters, who still don't realize that we were poor because of my work, um, <laughs> once those things settled down and I, you know, started living a peaceful life, that's when things really started to come up. I started having blackouts. I couldn't sleep. Um, I went through years of trauma therapy. And that kind that kind of redevelopment on top of the various <laughs> neurodivergences um, that I am blessed with means that I need a lot of space to regulate in order to do what I love most, which is analyze. Tell us more about this analyzing. Sure. Well, I love systems. I love how things are tied together. And I love to apply what I see in nature or in physics or wherever else to how we function. Ultimately, the things that we create look like how we are. (laughs) And that's because each of us is kind of our own Each of us is our own world. And what I mean by that is, yes, we have our inner world, but also there is an actual physical representation of billions of years of almost social contracts between various living organisms that have worked together to make us function as a whole system. There are many, many things that have um, come together to make us what we are that secrete the same neurochemicals or secrete, you know, they, they communicate with us and with each other mm-hmm. within the greater whole of our bodies. So when, when I say I love to look at systems and I love to analyze, it is one, because my 
life's mission is to help us reach our, our peak, to help us um, reach our full potential as individuals, but also as a species. And in order to do either, we have to be able to analyze, break down, and rebuild systems that nurture bringing the best out of us at any given time. And we have to also know what that is, or we won't know what to build. So how do we do that coming out of out of, you know, not really out of, out of, but, but as we are mid pandemic mm-hmm. um, and we're all dealing with that level of strain and stress on top of whatever else we already brought, because, you know, your story is uh, unfortunately not particularly unique <laughs> in the world right now. And, yeah. and so how do we teach ourselves what being, like in nourishing interconnection with our environment feels like? Ooh, this is such a fun question because of how I kind of gotten on the right path with it. So um, the pandemic hit actually in the middle of collecting signatures for my congressional run. <laughs> and Okay, then you can tell, let's tell, let's talk about that too, because that's a fascinating part of your story. Sure, I did. I I ran for Congress. I just, I believe so wholly in our potential and what we deserve that I thought (laughs) that one of the ways to to achieve that or to achieve these systemic changes that we need was to participate in politics. And I said that I started my first business at 10 years old. Well, at the same time that I was going door to door asking people to let me mow their lawns, I was also encouraging them to go out and vote. I was also carrying voter registrations forms because I was too young. I know, right? I absolutely lived on C-SPAN and Lucky Charms at that point um, and pickles pickles with chili powder. Okay, I have this image of you sitting in front of a TV on the floor, cross-legged the way we did in those days with your bowl of Lucky Charms and your spoon like wrapped. Absolutely, absolutely enraptured in the way that they carried themselves and the things that they said. And I really believed that, you know, anywhere from the floor of Congress to the floor of the UN, because back then we used to have uh, video coverage of a lot of what went mm-hmm. on in the in the UN, a lot more coverage than we do today. And so I was just absolutely enthralled with how these powerful world leaders, some of them who had even come out of situations like I was, were coming together to sometimes, sometimes it was very, very heated and they really had something to say. And I really took that to heart because I've always been a very Mm -hmm. incendiary person. person. But, (laughs) and what I really loved more than anything was the way that they would go onto the floors of these places and speak to, you know, all of the world's leaders and and make these cases for their people and for, you know, their growth and everything else. And then you would see them come back and have these same conversations with their own people and and here in the U.S. too. And from the perspective of a a 10-year-old who really just, you know, for years and years and years had already been a caretaker for for younger people who was already thinking about ways to lower violence in their area and everything else to see them go back and forth and behave this way 
was absolutely inspiring to me. And so I participated in activism and organizing. I've been organizing since, you know, I was a teenager. When I dropped out of high school to raise my brother and sisters after my mother left, I continued organizing. I organized for Occupy Wall Street in four different states. I was a scholarship recipient for the Democracy for America rally, the um, Defend the Dream rally uh, held by Van Jones in 2011, right? I was on at Standing Rock and took wood and raised money for Christmas presents for the babies for that last year. I just it it is mm-hmm. who I am. In 2018 I made the leap into politics quite accidentally when I went to a local political meeting. I was 8 months pregnant and people just kept saying this and I think you can hear it in my voice it still drives me absolutely nuts. It wasn't about the ideas. Every time anyone said anything about health care or education or clean water, someone would say, oh, we can't do that. This is a red state. Oh, we can't do that. This is a red state. And I finally got so damn mad and I was hungry. I won't lie. And I carried my giant belly onto a table and explained that if we are not the opposition, we're nothing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they want or what they say. They have a party. They have representation if they don't want these things. I came here because we need to argue that we do. And I left there on the ballot. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you did. Oh, are you volunteering? This is excellent. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea. And that was that was a legislative run and uh, I lost. There's no, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> a Democrat hasn't run in this or hasn't won in this district since FDR. And so later on I ran for Congress and it was the same deal. But we don't have, we don't have a political system if we just go, oh, well, we can't win. And we stop talking because even if you're out there knowing you can't win and talking and talking and talking, or if you're out there like, maybe we could win and talking and talking, talk. you're, you're broadening the conversation. You're widening the Overton window. You're changing what people are, you, you know, you can change the conversation just by bringing something up because mm-hmm. so many times people aren't even thinking that broadly or they're stuck in that rut of like, Oh, we can't do that. Nobody will like that. The funders won't, you know, depending on your context, right. The funders won't like that. The red people won't like, like whatever it is, like, like, ugh. right. We have to talk about it. We can't we just talk about not it. talk about it because somebody said they didn't like it once. That's not going to get us anywhere. Right. Exactly. And that was what I thought when I went ahead and took on this run for legislature. But when I ran for Congress, it was a little bit different because now I'm not just dealing with my state, right? Now I'm not just dealing with my neighbors. Now I'm talking to people who are, you know, funding the presidential campaigns, right? I talked to Kamala Harris's, uh, her, her finance person. And I just, I talked to all of these people, Mm -hmm. um, challenged John Delaney to a push-up contest, which I'm still going to cash in on. (laughs) But the, the thing with this is, is when you get to that point, you realize, you really realize that our system isn't actually developed for ideas. Right. Ideas won't get you anything. Your job when you run for office, especially at that level, is to sit at a desk 40 to 60 hours a week and call people and ask for money. And now Mm -hmm. when you call people and ask for money, what you learn is that every single one, one of them expects you to say something. And every single one of them wants you to say something different. 
And when I realized that this wasn't it, because I didn't actually have an interest in running for politics. I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to run for Congress. No, I got letters, hundreds of letters of people asking me, would you please do this? Mm-hmm. And so I did. <laughs> and it's just not what you think. It's not about ideas. It's not about people. It's not about what we can do. It's about whether or not. So there's a correlation in tokenism. And um, with my background in gifted and talented and, and being a mixed race black woman, one thing I have always been invited to is to be a token. But when you're called to a table that has typically excluded you, usually it's because you and the people you represent are on the menu. And so I was used to being called to, hey, we have this thing. We need you to go to people who trust you because of how you look and how you sound and tell them to get on board with this thing. And more than anything, I realized that that's what politics is as much representation as we have in politics right now, what it costs to get into a place of power within politics means that, yeah, we need the representation. Yes, we need young people to look up and see, oh my gosh, there's an indigenous woman I can run for my nation. Or, you know, black children seeing, oh my gosh, yes, there are people who look like me, sound like me, came from where I came from, who can do these things. Now that barrier is lost and we need to have conversations about how we now need to hear different things. Right. Right. We need to emerge from the tokenism era into, into actual representation. Exactly. And so the pandemic hit in the, at the very end of my congressional campaign, which I'm very, very grateful for because after that, like I grew up watching C-SPAN. I used to try and walk like Hillary Clinton, right? I'd wear, I'd put my sister's white box on my head to help my posture. And my mom once asked me like, who the hell do you think you are? And I said, it doesn't matter who I am. It matters who I'm going to be. And that's who I was going to be. So imagine, I know. Yeah. So imagine finding out that none of those things were real, that at the same time that I was looking up to this person who said that I could be anything, they were expanding for-profit prisons, juvenile detention in my neighborhoods, that that was why the same person who was responsible for all the friends that I lost, right? So I had a breakdown, a total identity crisis after that. And the question that got us on this road was how can we start thinking about and really embodying these integrations of our natural systems and start building those into the institutions and things. And those were the questions I started asking myself. How are these institutions so robust? What is the difference between a system and a structure as we've developed them? And ultimately what I discovered is this, and if you take nothing else from our time together, I want you to hear this. The laws of nature are absolute, but the laws of our peers require our consent. They are flimsy. 
the things that we believe are solid in our institutions and our systems and everything else, they all came from the same place. They all came from someone's idea. That idea was honed into a vision. And the difference between an idea and a vision is an idea is locus to you, but a vision is something that you can share because it is also representative of other people's experiences. That vision was put out, people gathered around it, and they built a system to produce the product of that vision on a predictable basis. And that is every system that we are coming up against. And so what I do with the what I did with the 2000 Days project was somewhere I already knew this because I've been helping people build companies, sm- small businesses as protest for, you know, almost a decade now. Small businesses protest. I love that. Yeah, it it, it really is because we can build alternative systems. And the power of building alternative systems is this. When we take our protests to our leaders as they were, they can argue our needs on the basis of theory. They can argue our ideas on the basis of theory. And so what we ask for keeps dying on the floors of governments as the sacrifices to disingenuous debate. And even historians believe that the difference between a movement that succeeds and one that fails is violence. And that simply isn't true. If you want to pinpoint one, one bit of evidence, just the adoption of um, capitalism was pushed through violence many, many times before it actually took off. So the difference between a movement that succeeds and one that fails is not violence. It's whether or not there's a popular alternative. And what can we do on the market that we can't do through protest or through government? We can exactly we can build, test, optimize, prove and popularize our alternatives and slide them right in as the others fail because they consistently do. And the beautiful thing about doing this in a context of business and entrepreneurship is that the startup world is absolutely chock full absolutely like riddled with stories of we've always done it this way and then the disruptor comes along right it's one of the few environments where disruption and intensiveness are glorified if you get them right people are like oh you can't possibly put a camera in a telephone Mm mm-hmm Tell that to Samsung with their like 16 phones and iPhone with their billboards. I don't know if you all have those out there, but here in the Bay Area, we have billboards that say at the bottom, shot on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. Because what they want to show you is how many data points are being captured. And the only way to do that is to blow it up to the literal size of a billboard and then hang it over the highway and be like, look how crisp (laughs) that is. Yeah. I don't even know how big a billboard is. Like, you know, it's hundreds of feet wide. and hundred, I don't know. It's huge. They're huge. And they've got the original, it's the original image. They haven't enhanced it. It's just there. Yeah. That's their whole ad. Here, we took this picture on an iPhone. <laughs> but everybody said it couldn't be done. Exactly. And th- so that's one thing I run up against on a regular basis now, right? Because I can't change everything. What, what I have Damn. done... <laughs> Huh? I said, damn it. I know, right? But that's okay. Because 
there are so many people who have hearts, minds, and hands for change that what I can do is develop a framework that people can implement and optimize to their needs so that they can change their little part. And that's what the 2000 Days Project is. I'm really good at systems. And I don't mean like the tech or whatever else, but I'm really good at understanding how to put cause and effect together to produce a predictable result. So that's my contribution to change. And that's so needed. And I'm going to tie this back into the question that I asked before we got off on politics, because human systems, human body systems, human internal systems need some measure of predictability Mm -hmm. in order to feel safe. And so what you're doing in part is creating safety around change, which is this desperately needed and very difficult thing to do. Most of the time, I will tell you, I'm an intensive. My audience should know that (laughs) by now. And and as an intensive, I waltz into system after system system, and I and I know I know without thinking about it where to push so the whole system moves. Mm -hmm. I was saying to somebody last night, I create change in pretty much everybody that I spend a significant amount of time with because I generate in them longing for what would be better. Yes. And that's the thing because that's what we get hung up on, right? That's one of the, that's one of the arguments that is levied at me on a regular basis is, you know, change happens slowly. Change happens slowly because we're scared of change. And I'm like, no, okay. We have a natural desire to regulate at a state of contentment, one that is absolutely very, very difficult, one that's not supported by our current systems. And so when you align your change with, one of the things that I do with people is the first thing I do when I do one-on-ones, especially for a startup, is we get really, really very deep into the very most minute functions of that individual, their energy exchange frequencies. And while they go off and try and figure out what they truly desire, I stand back and try to find representations of natural symbiotic relationships so that you don't have to come up with everything off the top of your head. You can actually look at a system that functions just like you do and just mimic it because that's your natural state. Mm-hmm. And so when we're building out these these systems that are going to cause radical changes very, very quickly, that's what 2,000 days is, is. We're going to change the world in 2,000 days. In five years, it's going to look completely different. And we're taking control of that. But the, the whole point there is when you make these changes toward the natural alignment of our basic needs – on the road to, or should I say the cycle to self, uh, self-enlightenment, what is that? Self-actualization. Then people shift into it much more easily, much more naturally, much, much more quickly, especially if you don't confront them to acknowledge that they're changing, right? Just let, let people feel good about things before they have to acknowledge that they've changed, because there's there's that rebellion aspect. People don't like to be wrong. But once it feels better, it's very hard to reject. Exactly. It's not impossible, but it's hard. Exactly. You've mentioned the 2000 Days Project a bunch of times, and I would love to have you talk like in depth. What What is the 2000 Days Project? Who's in there? 
How is it working? Is it something you've still got people joining or is it kind of a fixed closed group now? Mm -hmm. Talk to us. So it hasn't been fixed or closed yet. The 2000 Days project is I'm on a mission to change the world in 2000 Days. And what I learned from this process is going to be the basis for my next step in 2000 Days, which is the Civil Complexities Institute. Now, rolling that back, I've been working with individuals to help them build protest companies for, you know, almost a decade. And I mean, these are um, people leaving healthcare so that they can provide better care. And that's not just an, oh, okay, well, let's do the exact same model, but with a different vision. No, one example would be a friend of mine who was a Somali refugee who wanted to provide health care in his old home, but there's already so much money going toward, you know, um, nonprofits that are supposed to be nurturing that area for healthcare. And there's so much corruption. There's so much issue with the government. We had to go back and look at all of those systems and create an entirely new plan around how to produce this. And what it came down to was we're going to take um, Western doctors and have them train online, train local practitioners and build programs so that they can train local practitioners. He's able to outfit 13 villages off of around $50,000 a year, which is absolutely unheard of. That's amazing. Right? It's just a matter of looking at things and being able to break down systems. And that's what I do. So doing this singularly wasn't enough for me. <laughs> Intensive. So I started. I'm the- shocked. I know, right? <laughs> I started the 2000 days you project. More? Are you sure? I know, no, no, no. It's, it's not enough until it's all done because we have to be able to keep up right now. There right. are like 10 people who have so much messaging density and so much money and so much that they can do whatever the hell they want to. And they're making decisions about the future, like whether or not there will be labor laws on their space faring or their orbital factories. And that sounds far out as hell. But if we don't do things right this second to be able to keep up with the changes that they're making, we're going to fall so far behind that we might not make it. Right. Right. So the 2000 Days Project, and I know that sounds extreme, but it is what it is. You know, read read your Forbes magazine, watch Elon Musk's Twitter. Never mind. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't watch Elon Musk's Twitter. Just get the transcript. But yeah, I mean. I think that I think that a lot of people are like, oh, I don't read The Economist. I don't watch. I don't read Forbes. I don't. And I'm like, but you need to, though. You don't mm-hmm. have to read all of it because mm-hmm. you need to fill your brain with other things. But, you know, I just dropped my subscription to The Economist because mm-hmm. I didn't want to pay for it this year. But but I do. I I literally keep up to date with what folks just not folks we had on the extreme, mm-hmm. not so much Elon Musk, but like folks who are who seem yeah. almost reasonable. If they seem almost reasonable, mm-hmm. I want to know what they're saying because that's the slippery yes. slopes zone to me is when it seems like mm, maybe, but mm-hmm. it's also slippery my way. It's mm-hmm. a flat plane slippery and I can slippery it this way. If I know the conversation that's happening, if I know what's Boom. happening. That's it right there. That is it right there. And now the benefit of doing this inside of a group like the 2000 Days Project is actually messaging density because we are so few and far apart. And, you know, the slippery slope that's kind of leaning toward a whole antisocial movement (laughs) has such amplification 
because of their messaging density, that we all think mm-hmm. that we're alone. And the worst part about that is it makes us question what we're truly capable of. It makes us susceptible to, to accusations of what is and isn't possible. It puts us back in that room going, exactly. oh, we can't do that. Exactly. So the 2000 Days Project is a place where I am being challenged to take all of my models and everything and turn them into a step-by-step process. And now here's the, the thing with the step-by-step process is, yes, all of the pieces are there. But the reason that we also do things together twice a week is because how you apply them will be locus to you. Because while it's a process, the actual application is very, very individual. So who is in, who is, who is they? Who is we? So we've got a couple Are they dozen. like, is everyone a business owner? <laughs> like Yes. Right now we're, right now we're all small business owners because these are the people building systems. But a lot of, I mean, almost all of my small business owners are protesters. They're activists. That's what their companies do. Right. So they're doing things like desegregating classrooms that are designed for neurotypical children, right? They're doing things like outfitting disparate populations with their own health care so they don't have to rely on Western aid. And that's Mm -hmm. going to grow into governments not being as easily exploited. There are people who are changing what branding sounds like, who are radicalizing content creation, right? Just anybody who has an idea about how things should be to promote well-being, they're in there. Mm -hmm. Early educators. There are some early educators in there as well. I bet there are. Early education, a lot of it is kind of a mess. Exactly. And so you are right for the 2000 Days Project if you have been protesting for something and it hasn't worked because inside the 2000 days project, you have three really important things. One, a dedicated community community can share their wisdom. Community is proof that possible is a limiting belief because again, the laws of our, of nature are absolute, but the laws of our peers require our consent. And with an alternative, we don't have to consent. A community is a place where you can go to know that you're not alone. There is uh, actionable training (laughs) that's getting more and more actionable, plus our regular meetings so that we can apply it directly to you and a meaningful timeline. You've got 2,000 days to change the world. And what kind of training are you giving people? Like, How are you supporting them in changing the world? Because they're all doing different projects, right? Exactly. Yes, they're all doing different projects, but the process of building an impact business or a systemic alternative business is the same. And that's what I actually learned in my research after my campaign when I really fell back and really had to to figure out how, who am I and why am I so serious about getting this done? Because if I'm so deeply moved to do this, then surely it must be done. And I found that every system that has been built the process for building and and implementing these systems has gotten tighter and tighter over decades or centuries, really. And there are six steps to this process where number one is an idea. An idea is locus to you. It's fun and exciting, but you can't rally people around an idea. So you hone it into a vision. 
And when you turn your idea into a vision, you create something on the basis of the experiences of, say, your allies and your potential sympathizers, which when you turn this into a business, your sympathizers become your audience and your customers. As your allies and your customers come in, you together start building a system. And remember I said a system is just a process for producing the product of your vision on a predictable basis. How do we have so many inner city kids that are going straight into the prison industrial complex, anywhere from third grade to 12th grade? We have a system designed to do that. Exactly. Systemic traumatization. I can talk about that all day long. Or how do we have one that consistently produces children who go into the military industrial complex? A system produces that. Any place where you see consistent results, we've built a system to produce those results. Now, we've protested and protested and protested, though. We've changed things, right? We've had the civil rights movement, so why is there still redlining? We've had, like, women's rights movements. Why are we still dealing with all of these issues? Because each of these systems is integrated into a greater structure. And what a structure does is it creates inorganic links between systems that produces discomfort in, in another system, in another place in the structure, so that those who are discomforted become aggressive toward those who wanted change. So the next step, step number four, is to integrate your system into a greater structure. Once you've got that structure, you're going to go through two periods of growth. The first is simple growth. And the trouble with that, and this is where most businesses fail, whether they're uh, just a general business or a for-purpose business, is that your renown grows faster than your revenue, which means the demands on your company grows faster than your ability to respond to them unless it's integrated into a greater structure like the 2000 Days Project. And then there's the second wave of growth, which is density, when your revenue catches up or surpasses your renown, and now you have everything you need to show that you have a proven system that produces a specific product, a specific outcome on a predictable basis, say, well-adjusted children for my early educators who are educating to wellness, say, better maternal outcomes for my medical practitioners, like, we are proving that on a predictable basis. And now we're no longer having a conversation about whether or not it's going to work. Now we're having a real legitimate conversation about whether or not our so-called leaders are going to do the right thing and implement the necessary changes, which guess what? It's already been built for you. You just got to weave it right in there to produce a new outcome on a predictable basis. And so we've got idea, Mm -hmm. vision, Mm -hmm. system, Growth one, Ooh, growth structure. two. Structure oh, after system. Sorry. System, structure, growth one, growth two. Mm-hmm. Is that all six? That's all six. And then you have yourself on a, a systemic alternative. That's brilliant. And what do we do? Because I think we are running into this more and more. What do we do when we get to that point where we have data, proof of concept, it's all built, it's right there, it's working, And the leaders become willing to say out loud that they don't want a better outcome. Well, then now we're having another conversation, right? So on the other side of that, 
is the the self-policing hierarchies. Self-policing hierarchies are the sociocultural stratification of mostly working class and middle class people that are developed to keep small portions of the population policing other portions of the population. What purpose does patriarchy serve? Patriarchy puts a sentry in every home. It puts a sentry in every home. Now, if you have women and children who have a mind for change, they're policed by an empowered male figure whose social emotional needs are systematically, through toxic masculinity, systematically denied to him by his beliefs about what a man should be. And meticulously, though barely satisfied by his place on this social hierarchy as a man. Racism follows the same structure. Classism follows the same structure. So why developing these systemical, what uh, developing these systemic alternatives really does is puts us in a position where we're having social debates, where we're having public debates and people are exposing themselves as wanting or not wanting on the, on the basis of, of, we'll not go into abortion, but healthcare, say you, public health care, right? Universal health care. Right. Right now. Either you want people to live or you don't. Exactly. And right now we can disguise that conversation still behind bullshit about cost and, and all of these other, exactly all of these other things, which we all know are disingenuous. Y'all can't see me. I'm rolling my eyes so hard. They're going to fall out of my head. Exactly. But it's all disingenuous. When we create these models though, when we put them out there, now people have to start saying, I just don't want that. And we've seen that actually happen. We've seen that become very prevalent in the discussion around immigration, where it used to be, oh, these immigrants are stealing our jobs, and we need those jobs. But they're not. Exactly. Exactly. And so now they're having to be very, very open about, I just don't want those people in my neighborhood. Right. Or in my country. Or I don't want to support them. Or why should my tax dollars support somebody with brown skin is really what it's coming down to a lot of times. Exactly. And so while they're more vocal about their prejudice, there's also been a shift in support in favor of immigration and loosening immigration laws. So some people are going to dig their heels in. They're going to be very, very open because they have nothing to hide behind anymore. But many, many more are going to move into another place. And we're going to start seeing new leaders rise from that. So... My parents are in their 80s, mm-hmm. and I would never have expected to be saying this out loud. Like 30 years ago, I just wouldn't have believed it, but they are very, very right of center mm-hmm. Democrats. Like they didn't start out that way, but their fear, I don't think they actually want this much right of centerness. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to my mom, I don't know, six months, a year ago, her fear about what is possible is driving her to vote for people who do not really want what she wants. They want mm-hmm. something more conservative than what she wants. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's again, why how, how do it. we, how do we support people in moving out of that fear place enough to change enough to change? We can't rely on them. I'm, I'm sorry to say it. We can't rely on them, but we do have a responsibility to make them comfortable. And part of them is not bothering them with it. 
the the models for if you look at the law of diffusion of innovation this was used by Simon Sinek to show you know how to permeate the market the thing with that is you know you've got your 10 15% of or 2% is innovators the next 10% is early adopters the next 35% is, I call them crowd surfers. Once those early adopters are in, the crowd surfers are like, hey, that's where the cool kids are hanging out. I'm going to tie my identity to being part of that crowd. Mm-hmm. And then you have the next 35% who just come on because, you know, everybody's doing it and that's what's most available. And then the last people who will move over when there's, you know, no absolutely no other option. When their hardware will not run the old software anymore the new software anymore, they will finally buy new hardware. Exactly. And so when I think about this and I apply it to politics, because it is, because it's still about ideas, what we see is that we have, you know, us, the innovators, the demanders, (laughs) the fixers, and then you have the people who have been advocating for change, but they haven't known what to do. And they're going to be the first ones to come on. And then you have the next 70% that really could go either way on any issue. And you know, you know these people because they'll say to you, and like it's really important for them to say to you, I don't think either extreme is okay, but I lean this way. Right? And it'll be liberal Mm -hmm. or conservative. But they really want you to know that they don't want those extremes. And that's about power. That's about not wanting to get into an argument. That's about not really trusting and really just wanting to get along through life without having to deal with politics. And on both sides of that line. Those are the expansives. Yes, exactly. On both sides of that line, you can move them into an alternative because the decision around their alternative is really whether or not there's already enough strength there because they don't want to be in a position where they're stuck having to defend. They'll move it. They'll do the work. They'll go door to door. They'll come sign petitions on either side of that. They'll post stuff on social media, but they do not want to be at the forefront. And that is okay. Yeah, not you know, there, and, and even, even intensives, like some people are cut out for like frontline confrontation and some people aren't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing, the thing at the heart of a lot of the work that I do is, is let's not ask people who aren't good at the thing to do the thing. Right. That's it. Whether it's make eye contact or keep their desk organized or go door to door or speak on a stage. Like if, if somebody wants to do something, like when I went to seminary, right, I wanted to be able to preach. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go a very long way from I'm scared to talk in front of more than three people mm-hmm. to get to I'm willing to stand on a chancel in a robe and say things that I made up by myself for 20 minutes. Yes. But that was because I had an internal motivation to do that, right? I wanted Mm -hmm. to do that. Nobody was making me become a preacher. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there are pieces of parish ministry that were not a fit. And that's part of why I don't work in parishes in that way anymore. Mm -hmm. Now I do consulting and coaching and preaching. Um, and, And part of the reason that I'm successful in that is because I'm not asking myself to do things that I'm not really good at. 
every time I try to do things I'm not really good at, there's a problem. Right. So asking people not to be, you know, giving people the opportunity to not be on the front line if they don't want to be on the front line, but still to do something, still to have an impact, still to be part of a movement is vitally important. Absolutely. And then on the flip side of that, you can also predict the behavior, right? We see a lot of people who you wouldn't expect to be, you know, right of center who are moving or left of center who are moving one way or another. And you can quickly find why the instant you look at where they spend their time. A lot of, um, a lot of elders, elderly, will move right of center because the right has typically represented people of means. People of means have had better access to health care. They've had easier jobs. They've had all, so they live longer. And they take their ideas with them. And then as you get older, of course, you cling to things that you remember. Otherwise, you're just disoriented. You're completely unhinged in a society you don't recognize, especially with as quickly as things move now. And so it makes sense for elders to be, one, uncomfortable with change, two, to cling together regardless of who's leading the pack, and three, to look for who is the strongest. It's human behavior. It's perfectly natural. And so if we really want change, we have to, one, be sympathetic to that and then move on and actually create alternatives. That is the power of an alternative. Versus a debate, versus a theory, versus, you know, expectations. Build places for them to go instead and still feel safe. Right. I think, I think that's the key right there is that if we create an experience, a lived experience of comfort mm-hmm. that comes out of a different system, or, or, or even a nascent different system, even the buds of a different system, Right. It doesn't have to be a whole, you know, national level government implemented system. I mean, that's part of why for all the challenges, I know California is not perfect at all. But one of the things I love about being here is we have enough of an economy to be a pilot project. Yeah. And so every time I see California take a step towards something that I would like us to be doing on a national level, I cheer because we are this like microcosm proof of concept with what, I don't know, the sixth largest economy in the world or some nonsense yeah, like that. And so, so, so the people who are here are having a lived experience of comfort that comes out of something different. Mm-hmm. And when we can give our elders that experience of comfort, that experience of being held, that experience of safety out of, something other than what they think is the only way because it's the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. Then the transition is easy. Yeah. It's a level, it's a level step. It's not a step up. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing that we are just going to have to be okay with is that the transition is silent. It's silent. So one of the groups, I don't need them to say I'm right. I just no. need them to let us do it. Exactly. <laughs> One of the groups of people that I have been studying for a very long time are um, people in the center who are making a decision about which side to go to. So we have some very fine propagandists on the conservative side, whether they're calling themselves liberal or conservative or not. We have some very fine propagandists who advocate for um, corporatist conservatism. Mm -hmm. And right now it's wonderful because we have places like YouTube where I can go and I can peruse the comments and I can gather study groups out of the comments of these things. And 
track them and watch them in other places. Um, and you'll see that one of the things that that people on the fringes of a decision do regularly, and a lot of these, believe it or not, are white men in their 40s and 50s, is they'll take what they're hearing. And one of the entry points for conservatism is, well, what's the alternative? And so they'll take that. This is just one example. They'll take that. What's the alternative? And when they're at you know, Thanksgiving dinner or whatever else, they will target whomever they feel is the weakest and ask them that question. You've got 14-year-old Susie who says that, hey, trans people should be able to use whatever the hell bathroom they feel is safe. And, you know, here's, you know, old Joe who just got through listening to one of our, you know, famed world world acclaimed propagandists who's like, well, you know, what happens when this happens and this happens and this happens? And 14-year-old Susie or whatever I named her doesn't have answers because she's fucking 14. And he'll go back to the comment section and go, yeah, well, I sure showed her. You're absolutely right. They don't know what the alternatives are. They don't know. And they start moving deeper and deeper. On one end, they're isolating themselves from family and friends and, and the relationships that every human being needs. So, so social isolation is one of the most important tools in developing self-policing hierarchies in our society. And they move deeper and deeper into these new communities where nobody's really giving each other really good feedback or anything, but they're all angry together. Mm -hmm. And that's the closest thing they're getting to relationships. In order to undo this, alternatives had to be, have to be made. And one reason that people like you and I are so fucking terrifying to these people is because, dude, which alternative would you like to hear about? Which option would you like to hear about? Right? I have ideas all day long. You got problems, I got answers. Exactly. Exactly. Including to your social isolation. So we're terrifying because we're evidence that Susie's going to grow up. Susie's going to figure it out. And Susie's going to write the fucking laws. And Susie's going <laughs> to organize the communities. And you're not safe anymore. But if you confront And the louder that, people like you and I are, the more Susie at 14 can find us. Exactly. The more Susie at 14 has mentors and people to look up to and doesn't have to feel isolated, even if that means that she doesn't actually plug into anybody in her family of origin, because mm -hmm. they're all going that same direction together. Exactly. And as soon as you have the option of chosen family, you destabilize so much of the structure that you're talking about that kind of holds us in rictus. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Making sure that Susie has a place is vital. But what do we do with old Joe as we start making these shifts, as we start getting louder, as we start commanding messaging density and they're confronted with the fact that, yeah, there are real alternatives and your people lied to you to get you where you are? From my background, I say he needs pastoral care. He needs, he needs somebody to sit with him and be like, yeah, that's pretty scary, but you're going to be okay. He needs community built up for people who are like him who are going, I don't really like where this is going, but I don't know where else to go. Mm -hmm. he, needs a, he needs a community and he needs support services. And it's going to feel weird to him unless he feels like those are spaces of power. Exactly. And that the people who are developing these ideas and administering these this care are strong because ultimately old Joe's 
fucking terrified. He's terrified. All he ever actually wanted during that decision-making process is to figure out where he could go to be safe. Where are the toughest people at? Where am I most likely to be okay? And when he asked Susie for an alternative, he realized that those are the weak ones, or so he thought, and these propagandists are very beautifully set up to, to really stick that idea to him. And so we ended up over here. But he's miserable. He's socially isolated. Not only is Cousin Susie not talking to him, but neither is fucking kids. He's probably divorced, right? He's socially isolated and needs more. And as he starts making the transition into a new place or becomes alternative curious, that's a silent endeavor. He's not going to sit there in front of in his community and go, well, actually, I just heard about this alternative and I was thinking maybe it's never going to happen. And when he comes it's into these safe. other spaces, no. Because exactly. that community is so violent about alternatives. Exactly. And when he comes into an alternative, the first thing that he's going to do is run his damn mouth. Right? And for two reasons. One, looking for proof. This isn't tolerant. Y'all aren't actually tolerant. I'm safer over there. I was never wrong. And two, to see if there actually are alternatives. And once that checkpoint is made, whether he goes back or comes here, everything else he does is going to be silent until he gets far enough into it that he's embedded enough into it that he's safe. And then he'll start shit with his old people or they'll come start shit with him. But when I say that the revolution yeah. is going to be silent, that's what I mean. It's going to be those people reintegrating into their personal societies. It's going to be those people calling up their exes and going, dude, I'm so sorry. Calling up their kids and going, can I try again? It's not going to be, you're damn right, abortion is healthcare. It's going to be, hey, Jane, I left when you were 12. I'm so sorry. Tell me everything. Also, I'm glad you made your transition. You know, it's, that's, what, that's what it's going to look like. We'll only see the shifts in the and, <laughs> and those people who are making those changes mm-hmm. are on TikTok. They're yeah. on TikTok. TikTok, with their extremely astute algorithm and massive data collection about what you watch and what you skip, those people are on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Those redemption narratives, from my perspective, redemption narratives are on TikTok. And so I think that we have to be conscious of what the various platforms are, are teaching us about what's possible. Yep, Absolutely. Because I know TikTok has a bunch of security problems. I'm not arguing necessarily in favor of TikTok broadly, but but being aware of how it, what it feeds us is different from what mm-hmm. Facebook feeds us is different from what Twitter feeds us is different. Um, because we, especially we who perceive ourselves as marginalized or underdogs or who are starting out from a position of having to think consciously about accruing power rather than just having it handed to us. Mm-hmm we need to be thinking about which narratives we are feeding ourselves, what stories we are telling each other. Are we telling the story of uncle Joe who one day late at night, half drunk ran across a YouTube that made him think differently. And then he started to do his own research and discovered that the YouTube was like a gateway to a whole bunch more information. And then he suddenly ended up going, well, maybe, Mm -hmm. Like, are we telling that story? Is he out there telling that story? He's out there on TikTok. 
But who else is telling the story, right? How are we spreading those stories among ourselves so that we have not just a map, mm-hmm. not just proof of concept, but also hope? Right. And this is a story of the history of messaging and power. Yes. And it like really it's is. like the pamphlet wars from the from the 18th century, right? Somebody got their hands on like their own printing press and then it was trouble. Mm-hmm. YouTube, TikTok, social media are all versions of that. Mm-hmm. Now there's, you know, very, there are varying num- amounts of um, control over who gets public published in quotes, who gets published and, and how that publication is edited before it, it goes public Mm-hmm. And who reads it or who watches it or who listens to it. Um, and in some ways that makes us a very generative era. And in other ways, it means that we, if we want to continue to move forward, we have to control our own narratives to some extent. We have to control our own narrative environments. Mm-hmm. And when in doubt, just remember that possible is a limiting belief. We, I mean, the self-help arena is absolutely replete with half truths about, you know, co-creation and manifestation and all of these, these things. But the fact of the matter is we have the power to contribute components to any reaction in the cause and effect equation. And if you do that consistently, and if you build systems to do that consistently, you will eventually, and probably not very long, change the ultimate effect. That simple. Co-create, manifest to your heart's desire in the process of contributing your components to the massive component of what already is and changing the outcome. Cause and effect. Anybody who's ever done chemistry knows what happens when you add an unexpected element to a known reaction. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything's possible. Exactly. Exactly. Because the laws of our peers all came from the same wavelengths. They all came from the same limited components that you have in your brain. The physical and chemical representations of an idea. I have this image of like, so when I was a kid, my mom was absolutely committed to developing my creative imagination, which meant that I had no representational toys. Nothing that looked like anything when it came into the house. I had bristle blocks. I had Legos. I had Tinker Toys. But Legos didn't come in kits at that time. They were Mm -hmm. just like colored blocks that you could stick together. You couldn't, the kit that I had was a little box and you couldn't even build the house that was on the cover with the stuff in the box. Oh, no. So it was, my mom was, was really devoted to this idea that everything that I did, everything that I created would have come out of my imagination or out of my life experience rather than coming out of somebody else's imagination. There were no dolls. I mean, I had some stuffed animals that were given to me as a, as a young, young kid, but I didn't really have dolls. I didn't have absolutely no Barbies. Like it was very, very, um, it was almost idealistic, you know, like this, this idea that we're going (laughs) to, we're going to create an environment that fosters, fosters, you know, new neurons and new, new thoughts. And well, she did it. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, she did it. <laughs> but, but, you know, I have this image of all of us being given similar, not identical, but similar sets of 
completely nondescript Legos. We got the threes and the twos and the ones mm-hmm. and like a flat thing to stick them on. And some of us had more, some of us have fewer, some of us have more range of colors, some of us have fewer ranges of colors, but that's basically we all the inside of our brains all look like that. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to build? Are we going to look at each other's work and like try and build what each other are building? Or are we going to just sit there and stare at the sky and try and make a cloud? Cause that's what we're looking at. Or like what's going to happen? What's the input? And then what's the output? I think we really get to decide and there are mediums for expressing a wide range of experimentation, right? We have the arts, we have literature, we have so many opportunities to express however we want that relationship to feel. But when it comes to building the systems that will choreograph our lives, it really needs to come from relationships and a commitment to fostering the most content and even basis for those relationships. I absolutely love that. And that is a perfect segue into my next and last question, which is, What is the world you're dreaming of? What is the world you're aiming for? If you're wildly successful, what does that look like? A socially actualized world. The work that I do is actually fed by the work that's already being done by people who are racing for space. Since the very first moments that we came out of our caves and our canopies, immediately we started searching the stars. We've always known that we're going to space, but right now, as as it's happening, it's unfolding before our very eyes. Our our latent potential to become a space-faring civilization, but everyone's focused on the mechanics of it. And society is a technology It is the technology that first gave us the stability to even cast our imaginations into space. I'm dreaming of a world that is so socially stable, that nurtures so much of our individual self-actualization journey, that we can catch anyone who falls through the cracks, that there's infinite opportunity for individuals to express their individuality, for ecologies to express their fluctuations and flows, because the societies and the systems that we've built are so stable that nobody gets left behind. I know that that is the kind of stability, the kind of foundation that whoever makes it into space is going to need. I want us to go and find new worlds because we're curious, not because we're desperate. Just like taking that in, what would it feel like to my nervous system to know that we had that kind of, the stability I'm envisioning is like, like prairie grasses, right? It's not that they stay stiff in the wind. It's not that they stand upright under three feet of snow. It's that they harbor an entire civilization in their roots underground and that they bend and flow and stand and fall over and stand again. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're sustainable and that's how they're healthy. I was reading an article about 
um, one of the major earthquakes that happened, I think about 10 years ago on the South Asian subcontinent. And this one guy, people were like interviewing him because he lived through it. Well, he lived through it because he was with his school and they were out on a field away from all the buildings sitting on the ground. There were no trees, there were no buildings. So his whole class was just fine because it was, I forget, some major event holiday thing. And they were all watching a presentation sitting on the ground. Nothing was there to fall over. Nothing was there to crash. Nothing was there to crumble. Mm-hmm. How can we make a society that feels like that? Oh, yeah, there was an earthquake. That happens. Yeah. So we systemize the product of that vision. We know that our education systems worldwide are producing mental illness. We can just stop doing that. We know that many of the institutions that we have in place re-traumatize people who are seeking services, people who are should be rehabilitated for crimes but are actually being re-traumatized over and over to the point where many of them cannot re-enter society. We can just stop doing that. We know that the systems we have in place right now are, are antisocial in their product. And a lot of that gets chalked up to hu- the human condition. But the human condition is contentment. Our bodies are physically and chemically built to try to reach homeostasis. Fear is outside of that. Anger is outside of that. All of these heightened senses are outside of that homeostasis. So if the systems that we are creating are knocking us consistently outside of homeostasis, then we can't say that that anger or fighting or whatever else is the human condition. We really have to start looking at the systems in place and restructure them to produce more humanitarian outcomes. Now, the world is not going to be completely devoid of trouble. It's never going to be, there's never not going to be a breakup. There's never not going to be a fight. It's whether or not the system is producing the conditions for that. It's whether or not we have institutions in place to make it possible for for people to reattain homeostasis. Right now, we don't. Right now, with the consistent re-traumatization of people, we're producing stereotypes and then marketing those stereotypes toward other people who are supposed to maintain their place on a self-policing hierarchy. It's not that individual lives will be without trouble and things to make us stronger. It's that the systems in place will make it safe to heal from those events, make it possible to heal from those events and consistently produce people who are better for them. And, and make those events less damaging. Yeah. Right? When we give people really good communication tools, we end up building bonds instead of breaking relationship. Mm-hmm. And the more of that that's out there, you know, yes, breakups will always be challenging, but they don't have to be as damaging as they are. Exactly. So you have said so many, so many brilliant things today. I've got a couple of things that I wrote down that I definitely want to hang on to and chew on for longer. If, if you want to leave our listeners with one, one takeaway, one like thing that you want them to, 
turn off this podcast and go chew on and be like, I can't listen to another podcast right now because I just need to digest this for a minute. What would that be? Oh, my change makers. Don't fight. You do not have to fight for change. Fighting is high manifestation energy. And when we're fighting, all we will attract is more fighting. Sit back. Find your contentment and build from that place. Find your contentment and build from that place. And you will find that you will attract more people who want what you're building. And you will repel people who are afraid that you won't fight with them. Fighting is a distraction. And distraction is the only failure. Mm. Thank you. So if people want to find more of you on your podcast, on your website, wherever else you'd like them to find you, where should they look? Sure. Well, you can Google Mina Raver and you'll find me absolutely everywhere. Probably like one of the most doxable people in the world. (laughs) But my podcast is Forging Fortune. My website is TICIV, that's short for Type 1 Civilization, that's T-I-C-I-V dot com. Or you can look up the 2000 Days Project at 2kdaysproject.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Folks, this has been Mina Raver. She is all kinds of brilliant. If you somehow ended up tuning in in the middle, if you hit like hit the button and ended up confused about where you were, go back and listen to this whole episode because every drop of it is fantastic. I will make sure that all those links get in the show notes. And if Mina has anything else that she wants to make sure that you get, that will also go in the show notes. We do produce this um, podcast with a full transcript. So if you need to read it, if you want to go back and highlight it, you'll be able to find the transcript on the site along with the recording of the episode itself. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. 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 When I was a kid, I used to dread going to school every single morning. I'd get a little bit sick, and honestly, I thought it was normal. So when I grew up and started going to work, and it kept happening, I thought that was normal too. And it was a long time before I found out that that's not, in fact, normal. And then I started my own business, and I figured that the problem would probably go away. Yeah, spoiler, it did not go away. People are unpredictable and they bring all their emotions with them into the business relationship. And we bring all our emotions with us into the business relationship. And that, that's the part that made me nervous. Wouldn't it be great if everything was just a little more predictable? Wouldn't it be great if you could like guess better what people were going to need or want or what was going to make them mad or what was going to make them happy? With executive coaching based on the Sinha Intensives Expansives Framework, you can do that. We'll help you find just a little bit more of that predictability by understanding what your people want, what your people need, and what makes them feel good. You can better anticipate their responses and meet them where they really are, negotiate better, serve them better, and grow your business better. For more information, book a call at intensivesinstitute.com. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. 
I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.